From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. Today's story is about a maximum security prison in the heart of New York City. For decades, the Women's House of Detention, or House of D, towered over Greenwich Village. It was the place where thousands of arrested and incarcerated women and trans men in New York City were brought to be arraigned, put on trial, detained, held as witnesses, basically almost anything that women experienced and trans men experienced in New York City's criminal legal system sent them through the House of D. That's today's guest, Hugh Ryan. He just published a book about the detention center. My name is Hugh Ryan. I'm a historian and author in New York City, uh, mostly focusing on queer culture and queer history and how it intersects with urban history. The House of D became a political and cultural institution. Ryan explains that for a host of racial, religious, and Victorian cultural reasons, New York's government often criminalized people who weren't seen as properly feminine. Women and men were seen as two clear groups that had to be divided on moral grounds. And the House of Detention regularly held trans men and gender nonconforming individuals because officials categorized them as women, a practice that still continues to this day. Ultimately, the building closed within living memory in 1971, And yet it's been largely erased from the public consciousness. Its inmates were absorbed by Rikers in the prisons upstate. After the break, how the House of D came to be. And we're back. To understand the House of D, we need to understand Greenwich Village, the neighborhood it was a part of. In the early 1900s, the village was a fascinating place. I mean, we think of the Roaring Twenties, right? And we think of Bohemian Greenwich Village and the birth of cafe society and all of these small theatrical institutions. All this exciting stuff is happening in the village in the 1920s. At the same time, even though the House of D isn't there yet, there are already jails in Greenwich Village. In fact, there have been jails or prisons in Greenwich Village since the late 1700s. Basically, since the birth of America, Greenwich Village and incarceration have been kind of knitted together. 1910, big important year in the history of criminal justice in New York City, or criminal legal system. Because 1910, we get this big act that mandates the creation of a women's court. That women's court is right next door to the building that will become the prison. And that court throughout the 19-teens, before we get all of these rich people coming to Greenwich Village to see queer people on the streets or go to cafes, all these bohemians in the 1920s, that court set itself up publicly on purpose to be a location for rich people to come and watch arrested women be publicly humiliated in court. That is wild. Huh. I mean, I I guess I... Can't say I'm surprised, but still, it's it's astonishing to hear. Yeah, they even set up in the first uh, advertisements, advertisements which existed for the women's court and the night court, they said things like, we have raked floors so that everyone has good seats, right? This was a theatrical experience. Wow, the worst day of somebody's life, and you just, you're just consuming it as entertainment. How did the House of Detention be, like come to be? There's a couple of big milestones. You got to go back to the mid-1800s, actually. 1844, we get the opening of the Watch House. Fast forward 30 years. There was a jail pen inside that Watch House. 
In the 1870s, however, that place where they were being held was a death trap. In fact, people died in the court pen. They froze to death in the winter. At the same time, there's a big conference going on in Ohio on criminal justice reform. This is a hot button idea, right? We're post uh, civil war at this point. So this system of incarceration that we had in the country at that time had primarily been a way of putting white, violent men away. And that system is now getting repurposed to take up the punishment and uh, basically the incarceration of Black people of all genders, which had previously been done by their enslavers, and women of all races who are moving out of the home and more and more into working and public life. And the first idea that they have is that what is essential to this system is separation. Women need to be treated differently from men. That is the most important thing, because women and men are so different. So, 1910, we get this big law that changes everything in New York City. That's a whole lot of shit to the justice system. But the two most important things for this story, it establishes the women's court, which is not actually a court for all women who are arrested. It's a court for all women arrested for prostitution or intoxication and eventually for shoplifting. It's a court for poor women. That court opens in 1910, and the law also mandates that there be an institution for them to be held while awaiting trial near the court. So the original idea for the Women's House of D was simply that it would be a jail to hold the women who were going to be arraigned in the women's court. But it takes forever to get this plan underway, right? They keep delaying it because they don't want to put money into incarcerated people. They're not interested in that. And the progressive era is kind of starting to fall. And it gets delayed, it gets delayed, it gets delayed, until finally they realize that they are in violation of this law and that they actually have to build this prison, that it is required. And by that point, we're in the Great Depression. So they create an institution that was built originally to only hold people for a few weeks at a time. And then the city government decides, no, it's gonna hold everyone. Any woman who's passing through our New York City criminal legal system is gonna end up in this institution. And that is what is called the original sin of the House of D, because those two populations need vastly different things. They require different amounts of space. They require different services. They require different hospital facilities. They require different management. And by smashing them together, the city had basically made an announcement that they didn't care about either population. So when the prison opens in 1932, right in the heart of the Great Depression, the women and trans men who are sent there are basically forgotten and ignored, as they will be for the next few decades. While researching this book, Ryan uncovered all kinds of stories about the people who spent time inside the House of D. One was about two star-crossed lovers named Charlotte B. and Virginia M., Many, many people met their partners through the House of D in one way or another. Uh, Charlotte is arrested for what is called waywardism. Funny enough, she's 18 when she's arrested under a wayward minor law because she's hitchhiking. And in fact, what the concern is, is not so much that she's hitchhiking, but that she starts getting other young women to hitchhike with her. Now, at this point in her life, she has never heard the word homosexual or lesbian before. She says to a social worker, 
I thought of myself like a dazzling football hero. So that's Charlotte. She is this butch Brooklyn runaway who says to a social worker when she first meets her, I am the infamous Charlotte B who hitchhiked across America and back again. She's got a reputation, you know? And she sees herself as a fun-loving girl who's out to like change the world, do things, go to college. Prison ruins all of that for her. But in prison, during those three weeks in the House of D, she meets Virginia. Virginia is very different. Virginia is a farm girl from Maine who is beautiful. And she uses that beauty as a way to escape this life of rural poverty. By the time she's 15, she's living in the Bronx on her own, working as a taxi dancer for the mob. She has the idea that she is going to rob this club that she used to work at. She goes in with three guys, they rob the place, everything goes wrong. One of the guy kills another guy there, they all get arrested, she gets tried for murder, and eventually she gets put away for three years. So, Charlotte and Virginia happen to be there at the same time, and they fall in love. They hatch this scheme, Charlotte has this idea they're gonna knock the matron out, use their bedsheets to tie her up, and then they're gonna escape out a window, like something straight out of the comics, right? And that's their plan, they get caught, Charlotte gets uh, released, and Virginia doesn't end up going to the electric chair, but she does go out of uh, upstate for three years. During that entire time that she is in prison, they stay in touch because Charlotte figures out that she can send coded messages through the personal ads of the newspapers that the prison gets. And when Virginia gets out, the two get back together again. Unfortunately, by this point, Charlotte no longer sees women's affections for her and her affections for women as normal and natural. Now she sees them as a sign of this dreaded, diseased thing, homosexuality. And she tries to resist. So they're dating. We have letters, love letters between the two of them, uh, where you know Charlotte goes down on Virginia for the first time. And they're so excited about it. Virginia's employer discovers the letters and is actually not mad. She doesn't mind at all what they do between them, though she doesn't want them to have sex in her house. But she says to the uh, prison officials who are involved, I don't want Virginia to know I found these letters. The most important thing is that Virginia stays with me. Of course, that's not what happens. Immediately, those letters are revealed to the two women. They freak out. Charlotte runs away again because that's what she does. Eventually, she writes to the social workers that she's been working with, and she tells them, if anyone gets between me and Virginia, God help them, because this is who I am. I tried to escape it, but I can't. And so she reunites with Virginia. She comes back up. Virginia has been waiting for her. It's now the mid-1930s. But unfortunately, once they get back together, they realize that they are totally different people, that they have never spent any time together oh, outside no. of prison, really. It's like that idea of like a vacation boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. You know, you think you two are perfect, and then you get together. They're like, no. Charlotte wants to live outside the city, raise dogs, be, you know, a family. Virginia is still running around with the mob, doing drugs, going out every night. And the two break up. But through this, Charlotte calls it the turning point of her life. Her experiences with Virginia helped her to understand her desires and that other people shared them. And her experiences with the criminal legal system taught her what homosexuality was. For many, many, many women and transmasculine people, particularly the working class, our criminal legal system is the way that they learned about homosexuality because it wasn't taught in schools. No one in their families told them about it. There were no books that they could readily avail themselves to. It certainly wasn't on the radio. This was how they learned what it meant to be a homosexual. And what they were taught is that it is dangerous, 
disgusting, the sign of a disordered mind, and something that could get you put away for life. In a perverse way, the criminal justice system seemed to be a place where many people learned about queerness in the early 1900s. On top of that, many incarcerated people were also taught that being queer or homosexual was a terrible, illegal thing. Emotional and physical abuse continues at the House of D into the 1940s. But there's a surprising change as the U.S. enters World War II. By the time World War II comes around, nobody wants to put money into these institutions, right? It's a prison, so first off, nobody cares. It's the heart of the Great Depression, so again, nobody cares. And when the war starts, even those people who had been putting their funds towards the Women's House of Detention and incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and trans-masked people, they start putting their money elsewhere, to the Red Cross, to war orphans. So we get this prison that is largely ignored and abandoned. However, the war does something else. We simply do not have the time or literal manpower to arrest people as much. So the war is actually this really weird moment for incarcerated folks. I would say most likely around the country, but definitely in New York City, because prison populations drop drastically. Not because anything real has changed, right? We're just not putting the effort into it. So what'll end up happening with the war is that we get this idea that the reason this happens is because our prohibition policies, our drug policies, which have been changing in the early part of the 20th century, are working. This isn't true. It is happening because of the war. But all of these people become convinced that harsh penalties on people who use or sell drugs, drugs that had only been illegalized a few years earlier in some cases, those penalties are working. So when the war ends, and we suddenly have the vast manpower of not just local governments, but now the federal government starts to pay attention to these people too with drug laws that are really punitive. That vast power starts to hoover up a huge number of people. After World War II, the prisons in New York State, particularly those for women, become warehouses to hold people who are using drugs or who are assumed to be using drugs. When we come back from the break, the House of D enters the 60s and the war on drugs. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. And we're back. In the second half of the 20th century, there's a movement against mass incarceration. And that hits home at the House of Detention. So obviously, like, you know, the 60s and 70s were a time of lots of societal change in America. Uh, how did that affect the life at the prison? There's all of this 
internal activism that's happening in the prison. In the 1950s, we start to get the first riots in the House of D. Women set fire to their belongings, throw them out the windows, they break things, they try to free each other. Happens over and over again. Partially this is because conditions have gotten so bad, right? They're ignored, abandoned, it's the conservative 50s, it's super overcrowded. But it's also because these same women and trans men are meeting outside the prison. They're coming to understand themselves as oppressed people because they are queer. They're coming to understand themselves as oppressed people because they are Black. They're coming to understand the political analysis, which won't get put into words until a little later in the 60s and 70s, at least not words that historians can find and see, but are certainly showing up in the way they understand how they are being treated. And that is unjust and unfair. And they protest against it throughout the 1950s, long before we get to the Stonewall riots in 1969. These these women are learning that they can get attention if they protest. Wow. Okay. The city is changing a lot, and I'm curious about how the institution changes around that period of time. To a certain degree, inside the prison, very little is changing. It's getting worse and worse. More and more users are there. Uh, they are treated worse and worse. 1950s is when Thorazine gets introduced. Thorazine is a tranquilizer that kind of leaves you in a zombie-like state because it doesn't make you go to sleep. But it also sort of dampens all of your emotions and it gets widely used in the House of D. In the late 50s and into the 60s, there is this sort of endemic over-drugging, which is... Uh, you know, darkly hilarious because these women are being arrested for being drug users. The other big change that I would say that happens in the 1960s and into the early 70s, the prison closes in 1971, is that more and more of the people who are arrested, as I said before, are beginning to understand themselves as oppressed people and trying to fight back in various ways. So in the early 60s, a woman gets arrested named Kim Parker. She's been arrested something like 14 times by this point, all on prostitution and drug charges. And she gets put in front of a judge with two charges on her. There's possession of drugs, uh, misdemeanor, you know, one year in the House of D, and a felony charge of intent to sell, five years in a prison outside the city. The felony charge is bullshit. There's no basis for it. Uh, these charges often get stacked, both historically and today, so that the court can allow someone to plead out on one charge and just uh, rein them on the lesser charge. So that was the original idea. This five-year felony intent to sell charge on Kim Parker was bullshit and it was gonna get dropped at court and then she'd spend a year for possession in the House of D. Except that at her trial, she stands up and says, I will take the five-year felony anywhere else rather than go back to the House of D because there are no services and there is nothing to do. Remember, it's designed as a jail for people to be there for a few weeks. There's no social services. There's no vocational reform. The prison is falling apart. It's rat infested. It's um, vermin infested. The sheets are changed once a month. The blankets once every couple of months. The city doesn't even bother to keep track of what is and isn't working. We know that those internal, um, really brutal genital examinations that they're doing, they're doing them for drugs. A warden in the 1950s actually writes in a report that no drugs have ever been found in the entire time the prison has been open through those searches, and yet they continue doing them, right? And when the Black Panthers start to get arrested and put in there, particularly Afini Shakur, Joan Byrd, and Angela Davis, they start organizing with the women who are incarcerated. 
Angela Davis, in fact, says in her memoir that this is the only time she was ever held in the general population. She's there right before the prison closes in 1971. And so she starts to organize. She sets up a bail fund. She does all of this other work to help work with incarcerated people to get them out of the prison and get them organizing so that all of this energy that they already have is being devoted to her cause that helps them. So by the time the Stonewall riot comes around, which is 1969, when Afini Shakur is in the prison during the Stonewall riots, she is there. She sees it is 500 feet from the Stonewall Bar to the House of D. You can see straight down Christopher Street, the women in the prison, the trans masked people in the prison, they are part of the Stonewall Rebellion. We never talk about it, but there are accounts, multiple accounts of people who saw prisoners rioting that night, not just rioting. They took what they had, they set fire to their belongings, threw them out the windows and chanted, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. They are never counted as part of the story of Stonewall. But they were right there. They were part of the protest. And in fact, we talk about the bravery of the Stonewall vets, the very first ones on the first night, because Stonewall lasts many nights, right? The ones who went up against the cops. These women and trans masculine people were doing that while incarcerated. That is incredible bravery. So of course, this needs to be shut down, right? 1971, after all of this foment and activism is happening, is when the prison gets shut down and shuttled over to Rikers. This is also when we start to get the system of real mass incarceration, because part of the trick of mass incarceration, I, I think a necessary component for it to exist at all, is you have to invisibilize it, because it is evil. And what is happening in these spaces is terrible. And if you see it, you'll know. And so we have to hide these people in order to make the system work. And then we move everyone over to Rikers. Greenwich Village by this point is full of folks who want to gentrify the area or are already gentrifying the area, for whom the prison is seen as interlopers. The prison, which has hundreds of years of history in Greenwich Village, is suddenly now constructed as the wrong people in the wrong place. They can't be helped here, is what, you know, the NIMBY neighbors all say. It's this idea of, no, 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 we want to help them, but to help them, we must send them away to an island where we will never think or see about them again. Even though the House of Detention eventually became a site of organizing and resistance, it was still a prison. It was built to shut the people it housed away from society. Because that's what incarceration does. It hides people. We've got to hide everyone. And not just the actual physical institutions, but if you think about the way we treat formerly incarcerated people, you know, how uh, felons aren't allowed to vote, how once you've been incarcerated, you can't get certain kinds of licenses and certain kinds of jobs or live certain places. All of these things are walls built to keep the formerly incarcerated trapped in a prison that is no longer spatial, right? It's not this institution, but it is keeping them out of everyday life. It is separating them off. Why would we set up a system to keep them from getting jobs? Why would we set up a system to make housing harder for them, right? It's because we are trying to keep them incarcerated spiritually as much as physically. Both of those things go hand in hand with the moment in which the House of D closes. And that's when mass incarceration begins in earnest. Prisons start to move out of cities, moving inmates even further out of sight. But that's not the end of the story. Eventually, liberation movements spring up. They fracture, and then they change. 
So into the 2000s, we start to get organizations like Queers for Economic Justice. And into the 2010s, we get the Movement for Black Lives, which has so many points specifically relating to queer life in their explicit policies, right? I see the Movement for Black Lives as being directly related to the gay liberation front and to the movement that helped get these people out of prison. It is a queer movement, as is the trans rights movement. I mean, we see the trans rights movement very much focuses on issues of police persecution and incarceration. The story hasn't ended yet. New York City's notorious island jail Rikers is still open, despite two mayors promising to close it. Even so, the work continues because it has to. Special thanks to Hugh Ryan for joining us today. His book, The Women's House of Detention, is out now. You can follow him on Twitter at Hugh underscore Ryan. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsePod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Bijan Cakes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.